You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We're going to go ahead with the show and David's pick today because we owe it to a good friend of mine uh, and becoming a, a better friend all the time. And uh, Bob, you know Rick, and Rick was the one that uh, set Bob up. And Rick is the executive director of the Georgia Military Hall of Fame, and uh, we support him totally. And uh, we're uh, very glad to have Mr. Bob Babcock on today, and uh, I, sh- I should say Captain Retired, I guess, instead of just Mr., but uh, Bob has had a very interesting uh, life, and we're going to talk about that and talk about his military career, and uh, Bob and I, are sorry, we just started out our lives as neighbors, sort of, and he grew up in Oklahoma, and I grew up in Texas, not too, too far away, for the Southwest anyway, and... Um, as they say, uh, you get to Oklahoma and you smell it, you turn left and go into Texas and you step in it. And uh, that's the way my day has been today. I think I've stepped in something, and I'm not sure what it is, but it's uh, whatever it is. It hasn't been real good, but we'll accept it for what it is. And uh, welcome, Bob, to America's Web Radio and David's Pick. Glad to be here. Thank you, sir. And... Uh, the name of the little town in Oklahoma? It's spelled heaven with an E-R on it, but it's pronounced Heavener, Oklahoma. A bunch of heathens. That's right. Heavener. <laughs> ah. Well, we, uh, we used to play a few Oklahoma teams in football uh, from my, uh, my alma mater back then. And uh, then when I went to college, we played, uh, or we showed up. I can't say we always played Oklahoma or Oklahoma State, but we showed up. And that's that, good. We always love to beat on Texas. Well, that's <laughs> that's what they do. I don't know why I'm getting an echo in here for some reason. You got any idea, Brett? Okay, uh, you're hearing me all right, and uh, yeah. In fact, you picked up just a little bit better now. Okay, uh, how about now? I'm good. Good. Okay. Well, what uh, what got you into the? Well, you went the ROTC ref. Yes, sir. And uh, then from there, you went to uh, Washington. Is that right? Well, now, I started off, I graduated from what is now Pittsburgh State University in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Uh, got a commission uh, in the Army and ROTC. Then went down to Benning School for Boys at Fort Benning. Uh, went through infantry school and airborne school, uh, which took me up until uh, about Thanksgiving. In fact, I showed up Thanksgiving week in uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, uh, and took over platoon for the first time. In fact, as we were driving from Fort Benning to Fort Lewis, the Battle of the Adrang Valley was raging in Vietnam, and I had this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach that maybe my destiny might include Vietnam. Vietnam, when you went in, it was at the the heat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Vietnam, when I went in, in fact, when I went into the Army, it was just a a month or so before I went in that Johnson sent the first cab over, and I was at Fort Benning in early August of 65 when, uh, when first cab was shipping out. Mm. So I was seeing the heat and the uh, excitement and the reality of going to war. And soon after, the Big Red One went over, and the 173rd Airborne was already there, as were the Marines. So we knew we were getting into something. Did, uh, when you first went in, or, well, when you were shipping out, and uh, like you said, you went by boat, and did you feel like... Or did you ever have any feeling that your government, our government, wasn't behind you, or you know, or they were going to do and try everything that they uh, possibly could? No. Do 
none of us had that feeling back then because what our plan was, we were going to stop the domino theory and we were going to stop uh, communism in Southeast Asia instead of on the California shores of America. And uh, that was sort of what all of us thought as we went over there back then. This was long before the war turned, the country turned against us. Uh, they were never for us, I don't believe, but uh, at least they weren't negative to us when I was there. You know, I always had the feeling that Vietnam, even though it was the first war that was ever almost live and direct, but I never felt like it was explained in this thing, well, we're saving communism from coming to California, or we're saving uh, the uh, Pacific from going communism, and, you know, we, we can't let uh, the communists take, or keep Vietnam and, uh, and all of Asia and all this. But that, there was never really an explanation of all we actually did was going after, <laughs> which is not unusual, after France had failed, we went in. Yeah, and uh, well, we were very indoctrinated within the Army that, you know, the domino effect was they were going to hit Australia eventually. So that was the first stop that we were trying to block them from. So we went over as an enthusiastic, uh, gung-ho group of people and... Uh, Morale was not a problem. We were stopping communism, and uh, we found out once we got there, uh, the rules of engagement were not what they should have been, like they were in World War II. The rules of engagement, so it was, were it, it slowed down and became a quagmire, and we can talk about the government and how they screwed it up. The soldiers did a great job. Do you think they were informed like they should have been? The government? Uh, the soldiers. Oh, the, yeah, I think we were. When I was there, we were, because our troops, I mean, I was the second lieutenant when I went over there, so I was a youngster. And the troops that worked for me, we told them precisely what we were doing, and these were draftees and people who had enlisted, we got them fresh out of basic training, gave them in-unit advanced individual training, kept them, trained them more, took us to Vietnam. So we knew each other very well when we got to Vietnam. And not a soul that I had working for me, fighting with me, had any hesitation about what our mission was or any hesitation about performing that mission. Had any hesitation. And as a uh, platoon leader, did you realize you were uh, the number one numero uno target? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, before, before I went, I, I had many a sleepless night uh, laying awake wondering if I was going to make it home or not. But interestingly enough, once I got over there, you forget about that because there's nothing you can do about it. So you focus on what I can do to make it home alive, and you quit worrying about it because I realize very quickly whether I get killed or not or wounded or not is out of my control. So I turned that over to God and my training, and uh, we did a good job. Well. Our, our military has always, in my opinion, been the best, and uh, we and I think just I think, and you probably saw when you were in, you probably got to see both sides of the coin as well, and that was the volunteer and the draftee. You probably and both sides of the coin as well. What did you? How how did you feel about working with them? Uh, I couldn't differentiate them. The, uh, we were so under strength when I got to my unit. I had nine men in my platoon with a strength authorized of 43. Then in January of 66, 
we got in an influx of troops fresh out of basic and game uh, I probably had 48 50 people in my platoon we gave them advanced individual training and since the army was so short of non-commissioned officers we had to find our sergeants our fire team leaders and squad leaders from our ranks and virtually all of the people that we selected as fire team leaders and squad leaders uh, were draftees not in not regular army enlisted and and you feel like you or you say you can you couldn't tell the difference huh oh not at all they were they were all good soldiers i mean keep in mind back then this was early in the war and we did not have the draft dodging problem that became later uh so we got a good cross section of uh of america back then and uh, i had a squad leader who was a college graduate uh with an aeronautical engineering degree uh he was outstanding Uh, i had others that were 19 years old when they went over and they were also outstanding you know, it's funny, uh, when I was in my uh, my uh, first platoon, my in, my, in basic, um, we messed up those poor drill sergeants' head in that uh, my platoon in my company uh, were all college graduates. And then most of the other folks in the other three platoons either had college or were college graduates. And so we sort of... Um, beat on the drill sergeant's head a little bit because they they had been trained that the only way anybody can learn is repetition 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 you know and uh when we would get it the first or second time they didn't know what to do with the rest of the time yep no i i understand that and the fact that we weren't trained by drill sergeants because the army was so un- unready, I guess, for this big buildup that we were the beginning of. Uh, that's why, you know, a regular T.O.N.E. unit uh, had to train their own people. So I have a training schedule somewhere that I am the primary instructor on 80 hours of day and night live fire training. Uh, so... As a 22-year-old second lieutenant, we stepped up, did our job. We had our regular Army sergeants, that the few of them we had, they did a good job. And then we, uh, we like I say, we picked out our best people. Uh, we had never seen the M16 rifle, but a lot of the people in, my, in our company had trained in a test unit in basic training on the M16 and the stoner system of weapons they were considering. So they knew more about the M16 than I did. So before we went to Vietnam, when we turned it off, turned in our M14s and trained on the M16, I'd never seen the weapon. So I took my PFCs that by then and said, guys, train us on it. And they had had eight weeks of it in basic, so they did a great job. Oh, that's neat. A, a good story. Uh, Bob, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back, and I want to talk more. I want to talk uh, more not only about what we're talking about, but also uh, some of the other things that you've done for the, uh, the division over the years and, uh, and the involvement that you have right now. So we'll be back right after this. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're making it short and coming it back, coming back with uh, Dave's pick on America's Web Radio, and we've got Bob Babcock on today, and uh, 
Bob's a Oklahoman and uh, Oklahomian, and I'm a Texan, and so we at least have that in common. And we're both also 11B40, light arms infantry. And, you know, there were so many. You, you made a point about the uh, M16, and I remember when it was issued as well. But, you know, I don't know that we were ever prepared to go to Vietnam. And it was just like, like you said, you you were issued an M16 for the first time. Had to learn the, learn how to uh, clean it. Hello, and uh, also had to know its pros and cons. And uh, unfortunately, the uh, M16 had a had a lot of cons to it when it went over there, as in flash suppressor and uh, getting uh, getting mud in it, and that kill the weapon. So what, what all did you learn about the M16? Well, contrary to what you say, we never had a problem with it. Uh, we trained our troops, uh, which we had done back when we had M14s. Uh, that that rifle is what you, keeps you alive, so you've got to keep it clean, and we did that. I think the people that complained about the M16 were the ones that did not spend the time cleaning it. So whether we were, well, we virtually were in the field all the time in Vietnam, and that was an everyday occurrence as you clean your M16. And I'm not aware of any instances that we ran into where we had a problem with M16s not functioning properly. Uh, We, as a team, very much were fans of the m16 we had the original m16 with the flash suppressor that was open open flash i started saying got hung up in some of the uh, jungle ornaments uh, oh yeah because what that you know the, the problem with that was it it would get hung up in vines as you're walking through jungle uh so that was part of why they made the second change to it of welding a piece around it and that was after i left but another problem we had with it which uh when you got a case of c rations uh, we learned that if you would put the wire of the c ration in your flash suppressor and twist on it you'd break the wire but sometimes <laughs> you broke your flash suppressor so we had to, we had some screwed up flash suppressors but we soldiered on with them the way they were and i'm sure we got some replacements as required um there's there's in fact that's that's a good lead-in to my next thought is um what you're doing with a book right now and that's stories and uh i don't know of anyone that's been in the military in any shape form or fashion that doesn't have a story, and not one. They generally have a number of stories, but that's what uh, that's what the military brotherhood's all about, isn't it? It certainly is. Uh, I have been a very strong supporter of veterans telling their stories, getting them preserved for posterity. Uh, when I first got into the 4th Infantry Division Association back in 1991, it was made up 95% or more of World War II vets. So I would go to reunions every year and sit around and listen to them tell their stories about fighting across Europe. They were, we landed on D-Day and we fought all the way through to VE Day. In fact, the 4th Division had more casualties than any division in Europe, uh, not because they screwed up, because they were in the fight from start to finish. Uh, but I would listen to their stories, and I'd go back next year, and I would say, uh, where's Charlie? I want to hear more stories. And they'd say, well, Charlie died, and Charlie took his stories with him. So when I became president of the 4th Division Association in 1998, I took it upon myself to collect the stories from these World War II vets and the increasing number of Vietnam vets and put them into a book. So I 
came out with my War Stories book, which has 450 stories in it, 325 from World War II, 25 from the Cold War, and 100 from Vietnam. And of the World War II vets, probably 320 of them are deceased now, but their story lives on. That's the important thing. Their story lives on. You know, this is one thing, and we're approximately the same age, but I couldn't believe I had grown up that anybody that wore a uniform, even after after World War II, was a patriot and was to be respected, and it didn't matter whether they were a, a private, and back then it was just a private. They didn't have all the E1s and... O6s and all of this stuff. It was just private and uh, corporal and sergeant and so forth. But that uniform, if you wore it into a civilian situation, it still gained respect. And then Vietnam came along, and I couldn't believe what I went through a little bit of, a very little bit of, and I don't ever want to... I did not go to Vietnam, and don't. I was in the Vietnam era, but I didn't go to Viet. I didn't serve in country. Um, but the lack of respect of the uniform for anybody coming back from Vietnam or during that era, really. And I'm just glad to see now the it's gotten back to the public. Well, not all of the public, but most of the public, I would say respects the uniform again and the person that's wearing it and yeah no i i hear you and i was in the army i came home in july of 1967 and i immediately got off active duty uh i was not disrespected i was ignored and that hurt about as much as being disrespected at least you could get your ruffles up if you if somebody tried to spit on you. Uh, I remember going back to my hometown and walking down the downtown streets, and somebody said, "Hey, Bob, I haven't seen you in a long time. Where have you been?" <laughs> and I said, "I've been. I was in Vietnam." And they said, "Oh, sure, it's hot today, isn't it?" <laughs> and they they didn't want to talk about it. You know, I was I was ignored, so that hurt. Uh, but, but I was, it was 68, Ted of 68 when Walter Cronkite turned against us and the country turned against us is when that really became a problem. So those who served from 68 forward caught the, the bad stuff. We earlier ones were basically ignored. You know, you brought up a name that I've brought up, I brought up the other day with, um, with Rick and uh, then with Tom uh, Foster. Walter Cronkite was no friend to this country. In fact, I don't know what shade he was, but he was certainly no friend. And I think the worst thing that ever happened was when he started the body count and the the, uh, bag count. I I just, I remember it very well. And and, uh, it was like keeping score of a tennis match or keeping score of a of a pool match or whatever you know and that's not the way you do wars and you don't go over and and put down our soldiers and i i had no respect for him whatsoever and i don't think he he was the one that introduced us to what we have today in my opinion um with the body bags and with everything else that uh, when I was in radio, commercial radio if I had ever done what they do today, I would have been fired about the second word if I had ever once been in the newsroom and offered my opinion, I would have been gone and uh, yet today that's all you get is somebody's opinion that may or may not know what they're talking about and uh Walter Cronkite was the one that started the uh, opinionated news. Well, you know, I agree with you to a point, but I've also got another thought. 
the body count, you can blame that on McNamara. He was trying to count it like he did building Ford automobiles. And I put McNamara and Johnson, President Johnson, those were the idiots that were uh, in charge of what Vietnam became. Cronkite and Huntley and Brinkley, if you remember oh, back yeah. then, they were the ones that, first off, they had a 30-minute newscast, not this 24-7 news, alleged news that they have today. But Cronkite and Huntley and Brinkley reported the important stuff and they were highly respected by the bulk of the people. But then when Tet hit and Cronkite came out and said, we're going to lose this thing or we have lost this war, uh, because people respected him, uh, that hurt us really bad in the military. Now, today, if a newscaster uh, says something, nobody respects them in the first place. So uh, they are just noise, in my opinion. I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, Chet Huntley and David Brinkley, the nightly news. And, yep. uh, again, it was also the nightly opinion of uh, of their producers. They didn't even write their own material. It was the producer that was saying, here, this is what we want you to to read. Anyway, we're going to take... They were just talkers, right? Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. We've got... Robert Babcock on. We're going to talk more about the book and remembering Vietnam and uh, also remembering the vets of today. We'll be back right after this. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, and we're back on America's Web Radio and David's Pick, and we've got Mr. Robert Babcock on with us, and Robert's a veteran of Vietnam, and uh, I'm glad, like I said earlier, that uh, the military... I, I, you're the first that ever uh, that I've ever heard say ignored. That's very interesting. Um, and yes, that the public can be very hurtful, and this goes along with my thinking and my feeling is that if you ain't been there and done that, then keep your mouth shut. And uh, I, I have a problem with our political leaders that will make decisions that uh, yeah you mentioned it earlier in in Vietnam I guess that may have been the first time it ever came out I don't I don't remember anything being said about it in World War II but and I guess it was in Korea as well come to think of it but terms of engagement you know if somebody's shooting at you my feeling is you shoot back and that's terms of engagement. Oh, yeah. No, and, and the what we were in a pre-fire zone out in the jungle along the Cambodian border. We spent most of our time the year I was there, and we were in a pre-fire zone, 
And if it moves, it's a bad guy, so you can shoot at it. But the issue I had with the rules of engagement is we would chase bad guys to the Cambodian border, and we had to stop. I remember one day in December of 66, we ran into an NVA base camp. There were fires still burning, and there was a lot of rice there, cook stoves going, and uh, we hit a couple of three of them, and uh, the rest of them ran, and we chased them, and we got out for a little bit further away, and I called artillery, uh, and they said, we can't fire. I said, why can't you fire? Well, you're in Cambodia. Get out of there. You can't be there. I said, I didn't see any line across the jungle that said, welcome to Cambodia. I mean, I'm chasing bad guys, and you're telling me to stop? And they said, that's right. Get back. You've got to get back within two clicks on the South Vietnam side of the border uh, to spend the night. And that was ridiculous. And we had the same problem with Laos and North uh, Vietnam. And we couldn't bomb Haiphong Harbor because Chinese and Russian ships. Those were ridiculous rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of folks listening right now. Well, no, that's probably not true. There are a lot of veterans listening right now that know exactly what you're talking about, and there are a lot of there may be some people listening that have no clue what you're talking about. But rules of engagement, um, I, that's a hypocritical term. And again, I guarantee the people that come up with those ridiculous rules have never been there and done that. And the other, you were you were initially sent to play coup, is that right? Yeah, we we were. Our base camp was south of Pleiku, and we worked out on the border. Uh, after I left, they moved on north. A few months after I left, they had the big battle of Dock Toe, and uh, the 4th Division spent most of their time along the Cambodian border. Uh, then towards the end of their time, we had four and a half years over there. They moved back to Anke, where the uh, first cab had been. Uh, but we were primarily a Central Highlands Cambodian Border Division. So what uh, what possessed you to become the historian, basically? Uh, all my life I've loved history. When I was in high school, uh, my junior year English term paper that I wrote was about D-Day. Little did I know then that one day I would be honored to be part of the 4th Infantry Division, who were the first seaborne troops to land on D-Day on Utah Beach. And then my senior year, I wrote about the Battle of Okinawa, and little did I know then that I would be on a troop ship going along the cliffs where the Japanese had committed suicide jumping off the cliffs rather than surrender. So I actually got to participate in what I loved in history, starting back to really Korean War days when troop ships would come through my railroad town, hometown, and I was always watching the troops getting off trains and watching tanks and trucks moving down to New Orleans to ship to Korea. You know, Bob, i got to bring this up because you said it earlier in a, in a way, but one of the terms that I just can't stand, I can't tolerate, I won't let it occur to the best of my knowledge, I won't let it occur on my radio station, but... As a historian, I bet you love the term, and I'm sure you just do it all the time, is you rewrite history to make it come out with the guys wearing the black hats winning and the guys wearing the white hats losing. Don't you love the term rewrite history? I despise the term rewrite history, and uh, there are people do that all the time. Uh I don't believe in it. In fact, uh, I put out right now, I put out a weekly blog on Facebook uh, 
entitled 75 Years Ago This Week, 4th Infantry Division in World War II. The data that I put out are the physical after-action reports that came from the division in real time back in 1944, and next year I'll do it from 45. And then the stories that I collected back in 1998 to 2000 for my War Stories book are also included so that you can see the actual true history from the after-action reports, and then you get the personal memories of that same week from the soldiers who lived it. Well, I, I'm just a dumb, poor boy from Texas, you understand, but I I never understood what the term rewrite history means and that I thought history was history, and, and our conversation today, as soon as we close it out, will be... Uh, be what we said and what you replied to, and that's history, and and amen. And I, I didn't know I could take today's show and, and rewrite it and answer the question. I have you answer the questions differently from what you've just answered. Oh, yeah. No, you and I have, you and I have the same thoughts because the reality is the politicians of today are a disgrace for the mo- most part to the ideals built by our founding fathers and also uh to call it news media is ridiculous you know if you watch one channel you get one point of view you get another channel you get another point of view on the same topic uh i make a point every day six to six thirty i watch watch fox news and then at 6.30, I turn it over to NBC, and you would think they were reporting on totally different events, yet the words are twisted one way or the other, but different, totally different approaches to the same event on the left-leaning or the right-leaning uh, alleged news people. Well, I go back to the true channel during those time periods, and that's the Western Channel, and uh I watch Roy and Maverick, and, uh, you know, they're the ones that are telling the truth. We're going to take a break and go. go back, be back with Bob Babcock right after this. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? and what is the best place to go for the care that is needed. We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour, on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Join me as I talk with passionate professionals on a program that profiles the best businesses, business professionals, business practices, and fascinating individuals to get an insider view of how America works. 10 to 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, and we're back on America's Web Radio with our guest today, Mr. Bob Babcock. And, uh, Bob, I, I know this isn't the greatest thing in the world, but I want to thank you personally for what you're doing and bringing forth and 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 uh, preserving the memories of those that have served and the experiences that they have had. And I <laughs> I don't want mandatory health care, but I'd sure like to have mandatory reading of your book. I would like that, too. That would, that would make me very happy. <laughs> well, I tell you, you know, 
how I feel about uh, our uh, political leaders that have never they make decisions for the ones that are getting shot at and they've never done anything other than been politicians but your book how soon will it be available by the way well, I've got several books. Let, let, let me sort of quickly run through them. I have my personal experiences in Vietnam, What Now, Lieutenant, by Robert O. Babcock, which has been out since 2008. Uh, the War Stories book, which covers World War II and Vietnam, is now in three volumes. And that is on, that. all of these are available on www.deedspublishing.com my publishing company but you can also get them through Amazon uh, on Kindle or paperback but the other one that I'm working on right now is for the Atlanta Vietnam Veteran Business Association and it is the stories of the Army Air Force, Marines, Navy and Coast Guard people and we've got a couple of civilians in there uh, their experiences in the 16 years that made up the Vietnam War. Uh, that will be out in December. My plan is to have it available for our monthly December meeting the first Tuesday of each month. And I want to mention, too, that um, we're not sponsored by, but we certainly uh, appreciate the Georgia Military hall of fame and uh i think that's one of the greatest things going and all the folks that have worked on it and uh when you mentioned uh, the vietnam veterans business association uh i want to give a, a shout out to all of the folks that remember skip gray uh i don't i haven't kept up with them i don't know whether that should be past or present, but uh, Skip uh, was very active in that for many years, and uh, uh, just a lot of veterans, and, you know, a veteran can, well, Tom Foster, who was in here the other day, said, you know, uh, my wife marvels at me because I can spot a veteran or someone that's been in the military a mile away. And I think, and I mentioned that, uh, being in the military, no matter where, what, when, how, who, or anything else, it's the biggest fraternity and sorority in the world. And there's a respect among people that have served in any capacity. And I, I brought up, and we're going to have a very interesting show next week, uh, with uh, Donna Rowe, and this is a very interesting show. But uh, when you were in Nam, when you heard that, boom, 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 you knew exactly what it was. And uh, do you know Donna, by way? Yes, I do. Oh. Yeah, I've known Donna for several years. She's a great lady. She is, and uh, she was an RN in in Vietnam. And we talked about, you know, when when in my era of Vietnam talking about disrespect were the people that uh, decided they wanted to be conscientious objectors but the other side of that story is many of them turned out to be the finest and most uh, heroic medics that ever served in the military and a lot of folks I hope you got some stories from some medics Oh, absolutely. In fact, I published a book called uh, Vietnam Combat Medic by uh, by Ron Donahue that is, he was a Jehovah's Witness, a legitimate conscientious objector. Uh, he was in some big battles with the 4th Division. Once again, that's a book that I published through the uh, Deeds Publishing. And then I've also got Vietnam Nurse by Lou Eisenbrandt out of Kansas City who was up in I-Corps as an Army nurse. Uh, You know, the medics and the doctors and the nurses, we infantrymen, that that was our favorite people. I've always said my three most famous favorite people, first is the medic, second is the artilleryman, 
third are the Huey crews that were always there to help us. Oh, uh, you know, the, and again, I, I want to stress that I did not serve in Vietnam, but the stories that I've gotten and been told about the dust-offs, they, they would fly into hell and back to do their job. And uh, they, if they didn't pick up in a landing zone, they felt like they had failed. And uh, they, yes, uh, the Huey medic or pilots uh, were just absolutely incredible. And I would assume that you've got a bunch of uh, experiences and uh, stories about them. Oh, yeah, we'll have those in this upcoming ABBBA book. And I've also got three standalone books I've done this year by Vietnam helicopter pilots, one by Don Rawlinson. I happened to be on the helicopter. He just dropped me off on April Fool's Day, 1967, and he was pulling out of the landing zone when I heard a AK-47 going down, and he got a bullet through the uh, foot and through the powertrain of the helicopter, so... Uh, he was evacuated, and many years later, we became friends, and I talked him into writing a book. He earned a Distinguished Flying Cross in a Medal of Honor event on 22 March of 67, when David McNerney of Alpha 1st 8th Infantry earned a Medal of Honor. Uh, and Don was in and out, got shot up, and uh, kept going back. Wow. Another story. And his door gunner, Sweet Ekstrom, is a good friend of mine also. And those door gunners did whatever the Huey pilots uh, told them to do, but they helped them back up and help them land. And uh, I tell you, when I say uh, Huey crews, I mean everybody on that chopper, including the people on the ground that kept them running. <laughs> you know, and there's got to have been a uh, time when the Vietnamese hated hearing those when they turned them into gunships. Oh yeah, those gunships. I mean, I love to see a gunship when we when we were getting shot at those gunships and artillery, and of course, then you get the Air Force coming in. Uh, we had the A one E Sky Raiders and play two old World War two planes that could hang around forever and fly in all kinds of weather. Uh, we always the American people provide great support for the troops when they get in trouble. The uh I guess the 81st was one of the first to use them as uh, troop carriers and fly into hot zones, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know who they who was the first to use them, but we, uh, you know, I, everybody has an important role. I don't care what your job is in the military, what your branch is. Every job is is important to the big picture, and that's why when somebody tells me. I really don't have a story to tell. Uh, that just irritates the dickens out of me because they do. They just don't realize because their family needs that story for posterity. Their grandkids will want to read that someday, and great-grandkids. Their, uh, their unit needs that to build the history of the unit. And American history needs it so that those things are not lost. And these stories, ever it, it's like a tapestry. If you take too many threads out of a tapestry, it's tattered and, uh, and not good looking. But if you put all the threads into a tapestry, it's beautiful. And that's what veterans' responsibility is, in my opinion, to American history. Don't die with your story preserve it in some form that people can get to and learn from you know uh when i was when i was in and we didn't hear the stories of vietnam and all this and and uh you know we were told over and over again well uh first thing everyone in the army is is an inf infantryman period yep. everybody yep. but that doesn't mean that you're going to be to be assigned to uh uh, be in the, in the field or anything else because in Vietnam and I thought I always thought that this was a very interesting statistic and just what you said was that for every person that was in the field it took five in support everything from the mechanic that kept the APCs going to 
the generator operators, the this, the that, the nurses, the doctors, the but it took five people behind the lines to take care of keeping one person in the line. Yep, yep, that's, and that's true. And those people need to realize how important they were and still are and don't put themselves down because of the book I'm getting and I'm getting I'm getting stories as I'm I'm in real time still collecting them. My cutoff time is 25th of September when I'm going to go final with stories. But some of the best stories I'm getting are from people who never left the wire. And uh, it was, it's great stories. I got one yesterday uh, about from a finance officer and all the challenges he had to keep the troops paid. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. And uh, and who he had to raise hell with to get that money in there. That's right. Uh, and when they changed military payment certificates twice during the time he was there, and a chopper got shot down and lost $20,000, and he said for about 20 years they held me accountable for that money. <laughs> Finally, they let it go away, I guess. Oh, wow. Well... Robert, this has been fantastic as always, and the story that you have to tell is fantastic, as are all the veteran stories. And we want to be, uh, we love doing it. We're very supportive of our military. As I've said many, many times, I have a son that's in the Air Force serving in Germany, and I appreciate his service and certainly appreciate your service and everyone that served in Vietnam and is serving today and has served in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever. And uh, everyone should just bow their head for a second and say a little silent prayer that they all return safely and those that have been lost, that their families can live in peace and know that they, uh, they had a hero. As a, as a member of their family. Thank you, sir, and uh, we'll be back next week with David's pick. And again, uh, Mr. Babcock, best to you. And we're going to have you on again talking more about your publishing company, Deeds Publishing. I'd love to do it, David, and thank you for your service because we should never forget that there was the Cold War going on with Russia and the Korean War still going on with an armistice so you had a job to do, as did everybody else who's Vietnam era. You don't hang your head. You're as important as we were that did the fighting. Thank you, sir. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.